Hi there, welcome to the Matthias Barker podcast. My name is Matthias, I'm a psychotherapist from Spokane, Washington, and this is a podcast about mental health and moving towards what's meaningful despite hardship. Today, we're talking about pornography. This is a podcast that, um, I don't know, inspired a lot of conversation when I originally recorded kind of the main lecture of it. And I've just kind of seen this topic more generally inspire a lot of intense emotion across the board. Like whether you're someone who, I don't know, has a porn dependence or a porn addiction, and maybe you were scrolling through these podcast titles and you saw this title and you're like, okay, yep, that's me. I need some help. And so you clicked on it looking for some tools. You know, I, I no doubt that there's probably a lot of emotion tied up in this for you, whether that's shame or, I don't know, past trauma or how that's affecting your relationship. Like maybe you're in a relationship and your partner looks at porn and you're kind of situated where you prefer that they don't, but you don't really know how to bring it up or it's been a place of contention. It's been a place of conflict for you both. And you're trying to kind of figure out what place porn takes up in your relationship, if any. Um, Maybe you're someone who doesn't see why everyone makes such a big deal about this and you're kind of just listening out of curiosity because like it seems like everyone has such intense feelings around this and that's the truth because well it makes sense if you think about it it's sexuality is so personal you know and so when we talk about ways that we interface with our sexuality and and even ways that we converse with our companions sexually like there's there's just a lot of personal like deeply emotional spaces that this conversation I don't know, it takes place in. And so it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me that people either intensely criticize or are deeply connected to the conversation around struggling with porn and, and maybe getting off porn. And so that's that's kind of what this is about. I mean, it's not really a persuasive piece that you should get off porn. I'm not going into like the terrible effects of porn or anything like that. It's more a persuasive piece on forming a sexual ethic and then maybe some personal thoughts around uh, ways that you know, to do that, that might end in flourishing. And so that's, that's kind of the more general topic of today's post. I wanted to tell you about something too, um, coming up in November, uh, fight the new drug is a company that I've, I've been on their podcast. I, I like what they do. They're not paying me to say anything right now or anything. This isn't like a sponsored ad or anything. I just like what they do. They're doing something called uh, no porn November. And it's, it's kind of like their push for, you know, sobriety from porn for just the month of November. And they have a lot of resources. They really have a whole campaign around that. And so if you're someone listening to this and you're thinking, okay, I'd like to take a next step. I'd like to actually maybe get some resources and tools on helping me with my porn dependence or my porn addiction. Uh, I would point you that direction. Go to Fight the New Drug um, for the month of November. They have a whole program that they're working on. So you can find them on Instagram, online. Again, this isn't sponsored or anything. I'm not giving you discount codes. I'm just, <laughs> I just like them. I think they're doing good work. And uh, they're, they're also really involved in the space on trying to persuade people not to look at porn and and have a lot of data and just kind of almost like um, anthropological and scientific data on just the production of porn, which is really fascinating too. Uh, they're doing good work. I like them. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Porn is usually a pretty jarring experience when you're first exposed to it. Like maybe uh, there's a friend at school that had something or it was a pop-up window on your computer. Maybe uh, you found your dad's stash or um, maybe you had like an early sexual experience with somebody that kind of piqued your curiosity or um, or maybe you kind of saw it later on in life and it wasn't that interesting if you're being honest. Like it's kind of gross and weird and your partner likes it though and, and that grieves you. Like... It feels like they're cheating on you. It feels like uh, you're not enough. 
Like, they're not actually sexually gratified just with you. They need something else. And that breaks your heart. And, and maybe your partner feels that way too. Maybe your partner's like, I, I, I want to like have enough willpower not to look and I'm trying and I'm working on it, but every time they confess or every time you catch them, it's just reinforcing the idea over and over and over that you're not enough. And they're not content with just you. And that hurts, it feels like a wound. And so I wanna talk about pornography because there's, there's a lot of different ways that people categorize it. There's so many different messages and ways that people think about it. And you know, some of them are good. Some of them really inspire shame, you know, cause like I grew up in a pretty religious environment. So I grew up in church where I heard lots of sermons about undressing women with your eyes and lust and the dangers of pornography. Like I even heard sermons like equating looking to pornography as being just as bad as like being the people who are like sex traffickers because you know, some, some porn includes people who are being trafficked. And so if you're watching that, that makes you complicit in human trafficking and that, um, you know, you it's, it's going to rewire your brain to want to be violent towards women and all this like really strange messaging that created so much shame in me, like created so much. And I also grew up in the culture of like the I kissed dating goodbye fad, which if you didn't grow up in like evangelical world, that meant that not only were like sexual feelings bad um, and reserved for marriage, but like even romantic like flirty feelings were bad because dating was supposed to be for when you're ready to get married. And so if you had romantic feelings for somebody, um, you know, when you weren't ready to get married, then that should be turned off. And, and of course, maybe I interpreted that pretty extreme. Maybe that's not what was meant by everybody who was trying to push that. But, but that's how I took it. I took it as when I had a crush on someone when I was like 13, 14, that was wrong and bad. And if I engaged that in any way, that was sin. And that was a heavy burden. Um, it led to a lot of self-punishment because I kept praying to God and like, take away this temptation, right? Because that's how I thought of it. I thought of it like temptation or even like demonic forces that were like trying to get me to stumble. And and I was deeply fervent on wanting to, to plead with God, like, please take this away from me. Take away this temptation. Take away this stumbling block, Lord. And, and uh, I would fast for days and I would um, pray for hours sobbing in the night, like begging God to take away this sin because I loved God so much and I didn't want to disappoint him and I didn't want to do something wrong. And I didn't want to objectify my sisters in Christ. I didn't want to be complicit in human trafficking. I just felt the burden and the weight of all of it and didn't know what to do. And, um, and the message that I got when I went to youth leaders at my church was, all right, let's get you an accountability group, let's put a porn block on your computer, and it was very much centered around willpower and self-control. Um, you know, honestly, when I got older, it, it just kind of makes you question all that, right? It makes you question, like, why am I being so sexually repressive? Like, why, why do we have all these limitations around sex and sexual expression and sexual feelings? Like, why do we have so much shame built around that? Like, what's wrong with pleasure? Like, what's wrong with enjoying your body and enjoying someone else's body? Like, why can't, you know, there's also some suspiciousness like around, why does it have to be some soul bond? Why does it have to be some like deep engaged thing? Why can't it just be sex? Why can't it just be fun, novel, thrill-seeking, exciting? Like, why can't it just be an expression of the self? Why does it have to be so serious? It's just sex. And, you know, you don't have to live very long and try out the hypothesis for very long before you realize that there's something different about sex. 
Um, it's not just physical. I mean, we all know this. Like, there's something different about being mugged and being assaulted. Um, both violate your consent. Both do harm to your body. One's different. Um, people don't go to counseling to process a mugging that happened 50 years ago. But a sexual assault will stick with you for decades. Okay, there's something profound about sex. Even when you don't want emotions to be involved, even in the situations you want emotions to be involved the least, it still leaves an imprint on you. There's something profound about sex. And that's why I think historically and culturally, like there's been so many conversations and so many morals and traditions trying to contain or trying to understand what's the most optimal environment for sexual expression. Because what are the ways that we mitigate the negatives and promote the positives? Um, because sex can get out of hand really quickly. And some of our deepest wounds that we hold are sexual wounds. And so um, it's actually something not to be taken lightly. Um, most cultures kind of landed somewhere around like a monogamous committed relationship. Like, like every culture has traditions around marriage. And marriage is like flexible and looks different. Like whether that's like polyamorous or whether that's, you know, completely uh, exclusive or there's exceptions. You know, so like there's flexibility. But somewhere along the line, people were like, you know what? This is probably safer in a committed, consistent relationship with someone. And that was mostly because of kids. Like... The reality is that we're part of like this first wave of human beings that have the advanced knowledge around STDs, sexual health, contraceptives, um, more so than any culture before us. And so more so than any other culture in history, sex is an entity outside of childbearing, kind of its own thing. And that's why it feels kind of confusing to place sometimes, because it's like, what do we do with this thing? It's uh, in the past, it was embedded kind of in a cultural story that had a lot to do with child rearing, but now it's kind of, it can kind of stand on its own. Do we want it to stand on its own? Is it fun when it stands on its own? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's, and that's what we're figuring out in our culture. And no matter what, we have to embed sex in some sort of story, in some sort of ethic. We have to decide what the limitations are. And uh, there's kind of like this, I perceive it to be a pretty naive kind of fad around like why why should we put limitations on sex like isn't sex supposed to be some like a a, a version of self-expression and and love like love doesn't limit other people love doesn't try to control other people love you know accepts people just the way they are and lets people express themselves so we shouldn't put limitations on sexual expression we shouldn't put limitations on that at all um but no one actually believes that through and through like even people who say stuff like that they believe that we should limit sex in terms of consent. Like, no one thinks assaulting people is okay. Like, no one actually holds a sexual ethic like that that's in their right mind. Um, we say that, hey, a good limitation is both people should consent. And, you know, my question is, like, does that mitigate all the negative? Does that promote all the positive? And that's where we get into the realm of opinion and, um, and moral ethics. And different people have different ways of organizing that. Um, my opinion is that it needs to go beyond just consent because, you know, harm isn't... There's, there's plenty of consensual sexual experiences that result in people feeling harmed. You know, people have wounds and distress from sexual experiences that they consented to. And it seems like 
a good thing to consider. Is engaging sexually with this person consensually going to end in their emotional or physical harm? That seems like a reasonable question to ask. And, and you might think, like, well, it's not my job to determine if it's emotionally harmful for you. Like, that's up to you. And, and for sure, right? Like, yeah, it's their responsibility to protect themselves emotionally. But it seems like a compassionate thing to do, to take it into account. Especially if you have, like, a really distinct awareness. Like, you see that something's really codependent or strange or, or they're going through something and they're trying to just, like, I, I don't know. Like, I think you can sense in your gut what I'm talking about. There's, there's moments when you know that things aren't healthy emotionally, that there's something happened within this sexual encounter that isn't going to lead to everybody flourishing, that isn't going to end in a net positive, that might be pleasurable in the short term, but has real potential for some long-term emotional consequences. And, um, and I think that should be paid attention to. And that's my opinion. I think that when um, you have all these really diverse and confusing sexual experiences with people, it actually makes things really complicated. Like, um, I especially see that when young people are trying to figure out if they want to marry somebody, but they're really sexually involved with them. Like, it really kind of fogs up their view. Like, they can't think critically about if this person really, like, matches their, like, value structure, if this person has some dependency issues, or they have some trauma they need to work through, or, like, what are the aspects of the relationships that are well, where are the places where there's conflict and misalignment that we really should, you know, look at seriously before making a lifelong commitment to somebody. People will jump into these lifelong commitments because they're infatuated, and I think sexuality is, like, this fog that just makes everything more complicated. Um, I think there's some wisdom to refraining from being super sexual with somebody before you're ready to make a big commitment or as you're trying to contemplate making a big commitment with somebody. But that's my opinion. And of course, I think the majority of people disagree with me and that's, that's fine, like, um, that's just my thought. The important piece here is what is your sexual ethic? What is the thing that is guiding your thought process in mitigating the negative and promoting the positive? You know, that's my thing, but people have totally different ways that they land on that. What is the structure that holds your values in place that is more stable than your mood? You know, and if you're in, an, in a situation where you feel like there's short-term pleasure available to you, short-term excitement, but you could see that there's long-term consequences that you don't want, like what's your metric for judging that? What's your metric for understanding what aligns with your values, what's going to promote your flourishing, and then what's going to end up in long-term despair? Like, that's what a moral or an ethic is. It's, uh, it's a pattern or a filter for understanding experiences as they arise so that you can flourish in the long run. That's the goal, is flourishing. You know, and that's where pornography actually is kind of interesting in this conversation because pornography is kind of like an art form in that it, um, it encapsulates or expresses the ethos of a particular emotional culture. Like, another way to say that would be... Um, there's a story in the pornography that's touching the heart. And I know this because one of the first questions I ask and, and many of my clients who've come to me with porn dependencies or porn addictions is, what are you searching for? Like literally in the search bar, like what are you typing in? What are the videos or the pictures or the material that you're looking for and that satisfy you? Um, and what you'll find is that, especially initially, sometimes it evolves into other things that don't have a lot of themes like with the heart, but at least initially it starts with some inner felt need, something that really matters to them, and that pornography like met or at least um, touched on that felt need in them. Like the need to feel that someone is 
enthusiastically excited to see you. It feels delighted by you. Someone um, who feels safe because you're there, makes you feel powerful, makes you feel competent, makes you feel desirable. That's a need. Maybe it's the need to feel safe from someone else, someone who's taking care of you and tending to you. Someone who um, makes you feel like you're the center of their world. Maybe there's a need to feel autonomy, to feel uh, novelty and excitement and adventure. Those are all needs. And it's often the case that pornography is an expression or at least touches on that felt need. And there's immediately kind of a, um, a concern that arises when you start talking this way, where either it's other people or maybe people internalize it. They say, oh, okay, well, that just means the other partner needs to do blank, 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 blank. And then that'll solve the porn problem. But that's obviously not the case because like I've had tons of clients who the partner is more than willing to sexually engage with them and, and really wants to connect with them, but the partner would rather look at porn, right? So it's not just a matter of something insufficient in the other person. It's, it's an identity issue. It's, it's totally, it could be something that's totally not even attached to the marriage or the relationship at all, potentially. Like I've had clients that like someone in the family was terminally ill and then they started looking at pornography. And that's odd at first. You don't think that those two things are connected, but you know, through treatment, we kind of just realized that the feeling of not being in control, the feeling of the body breaking down and not being something that could be repaired, not being something that could be remedied, pornography was a way that that person was feeling like they're back in control, like they have, um, they have control specifically of the body again. And when we resolved that, the, the porn dependence became really like lightly fused. Like it's, you'll notice that the psyche will actually kind of release that dependency when the needs are being met. Or at least um, it's, it's, it's a lot more simple to address and through the use of just some simple habits like putting porn blocks on your computer, having accountability, blocking certain apps on your phone. Um, you can be addressed quite simply when the needs being met. But those blocks and those strategies, those kind of willpower, organizational moves towards just being more disciplined, they don't work when your needs are not being met. I've had other clients where, um, where they were feeling overwhelmed at school, like they were failing all their classes. And then when we just worked on some simple organizational skills around their classwork, worked on some self-compassion around how they deal with their own failure, pornography became less and less of an issue. Um, sometimes it's things in the marriage, but it's often the emotional culture. It's not, it's never something as, I don't know, banal as like, well, they, if they just lost some weight, then I'd like that. That's, that's surfacey. It's, it's not just a matter of just rogue attraction. It's the emotional culture of a relationship. And a lot of people don't know that a lot of, particularly men, a lot of men just think, well, if my wife would just this, this, and this, then I wouldn't look at porn, but that's on the surface. And, and through maybe months and months of exploring and counseling, you start to see that it's actually sometimes the indwelt feeling of like respect that you feel from your wife. Um, and maybe you're doing things that aren't very respectable. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's a conflict that's happening in the relationship or just styles of conflict where both people are trying to reach out with what they're feeling and what they're experiencing, but they can't just seem to like build a bridge to each other. And so that leads to a lot of um, emotional coldness and then contempt and anger and feelings of resentment. And then that expresses itself sexually as unenthusiastic or absent sexual connection. And then that um, 
And then that person chooses to respond to the environment by looking at pornography. And that's not just the other person's fault or the partner's fault. That's like both people contributed to the relationship in a way that wasn't functional. And then another person made an outside decision to respond to that in a way that they're solely responsible for. Um, it's complex. I want to include some notes for particular kinds of situations. Um, if you have kids who are viewing pornography, maybe you catch like an adolescent kid viewing pornography. It's important maybe not to read into their motivation for viewing pornography in the way that I'm talking about here, looking at these deep internal needs and how the person's meeting these deep internal needs. That's, that's not exactly the same thing, because when you're a kid, you're exposed to this material and it's starting to kind of transform you and then the actual habit of looking at pornography becomes the way that you then process future stresses and things that are bothering you. And, and so it's important maybe if you have a child that's looking at pornography to understand two things. Um, one, the access that that kid has to pornography, so you need to eliminate access. Maybe that means not having you know, his or her phone in their room at night, um, not having internet access, having limitations on the apps that they're using, um, being mindful of whose friends that they're going over to, the sleepovers that they're having, stuff like that. Um, and then two, if the child's like responding to an experience that they had that they're trying to process and understood, but in the sense of maybe having a sexual experience with somebody that's confusing, um, whether that was abuse or whether that was even just with a peer, um, having a conversation with them and making sure that they feel that you're available and open to discuss and process that with them if that was in the atmosphere. It's good also maybe to talk about what your sexual ethic is for promoting the good, mitigating the bad with your child and having regular conversations about what is sexuality, what's it used for, and how does it promote the good, and when does it go awry. Those are good conversations to have regularly so that they can identify if they do run into pornography, as they of course will, because access is crazy, that it's like, oh, okay, this doesn't align with my values. This isn't a proper expression of sexuality. Like they should be able to identify that initially. That would be the hope. Um, if you are a pastor, so a quick note for maybe the religious folks in the room. If you're a pastor um, and you're counseling somebody who has maybe like a porn addiction or porn dependence that, that you don't rush really quickly to just moralizing it on his or her willpower and that they just need to you know, don't problem solve too quickly. Try to have an imagination and understand what are the themes that are contributing for this person viewing pornography. Do they feel in control? Do they feel delighted in? Do they feel well connected? Do they feel whole? What are the things that they're processing? Like pornography is a tool. Like what are the things that they're processing and what are they using the pornography to try to solve? That's the question. And then, of course, like there's going to be sin issues that are mixed in there. But it might not be just like a personal sin issue of like willpower. It could be a sin issue of someone else that assaulted them as a kid and they're trying to process their trauma. That's so common. Um, you know, maybe them trying to figure out stuff in their marriage or trying to figure out stuff with their parents. Trying to figure out what it means to be respected by their father and what it means to be a man or, or a woman. You know, so don't rush too quickly to just being like, you just need to try harder. Jump, you know, don't jump to those verses that just try to moralize it really quickly. Try to look underneath and try to find what's underneath the surface and then bring the hope and redemption of the gospel into those places, knowing that the behavior will follow suit if the internal need is being addressed. So, um, and if you're a believer and you're just, you know, kind of moralizing this issue, trying to figure out why God won't take the temptation away, I don't believe in scripture that God makes a promise that he's going to take the temptation away. 
I don't think that's a thing. I think God wants to reform your character by learning how to be in the presence of sexual feelings and sexual desires, but then express them in ways that bring life. And I don't think their presence is necessarily temptation or necessarily a demon. Um, I just see Jesus, like when he was being tempted in the, de in the desert by the devil, and Satan came and says, hey, you can turn this stone into bread. Go ahead, turn the stone into bread. He didn't say, God, please take away my hunger. He didn't say, God, make me less hungry. God, make sure I don't eat bread until my fast is over. He didn't say any of those things. He said, I, I don't need bread alone. I, I feast on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It was alongside. The desire for bread was alongside of the value of, I feast on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if you have a value that you're holding to religiously that says, I want to wait until marriage to have sex. I want to not view pornography because that violates my values. It's totally appropriate to do that, but don't unnecessarily... Um, put all sexual desire into the temptation camp because there's a piece of yourself in there. And, and if you designate that as something vile that needs to leave, you're going to turn into a civil war and you, it's going to lead to self-hatred. So don't go there. Understand that God gave you that sexual desire on purpose and there's something beautiful in it. And there's actually something he's trying to teach you by giving it to you in the season that you're in, even though you're not married, even though you can't express it in, in a way that you feel compelled to. Um, there's something that he's teaching you, something that is actually going to lead to your flourishing and happiness in those lessons too. So don't make a deal with God of just trying to like fast or try hard enough so that he takes it away. That's um, foolish. That's not how God works. He won't be uh, manipulated. He won't be bribed or coerced into taking something away from you that he meant to be as a gift and a piece of you that he actually delights in and wonderfully and fearfully made in you. And, uh, and that he chose to give you in this season of your life, maybe as a young person or someone who's single that's not married, he chose to give it to you in this season because he has something in this season for you to bring into your character that will add to your flesh.